I want you to take your Bibles today and turn to Mark chapter 9. I'm going to speak to you today on a subject that is not addressed very often in churches today. And that is the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. By, by the way, just a little poll here. Have you ever in your life heard a full-length sermon on the transfiguration of Jesus? Raise your hand. Not very many. Not very many. As I studied for this message this week, I found out that a lot of the systematic theology books do not even address the transfiguration. But it's one of the most important elements of our Lord's earthly ministry. In fact, it's so important that the story of the transfiguration is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's an incredibly important story. So as we open our Bible to Mark chapter 9, I want to remind you that last week in Mark chapter 8, we saw that Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi in order to clarify some important vital truths that were so uh, necessary for their development spiritually. Jesus asked these men two questions. Who do men say that I am? And they gave several answers. Well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're one of the prophets. Some say this. Others say this. And then Jesus turned around and asked the second question, which was more pointed and more important for those disciples. He said, but who do you say that I am? And God the Father gave Peter the answer in Revelation and Peter blurted out, thou art the, the Christ, the son of the living God. You, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. This is the first time in all of, uh, of Jesus' life that somebody actually called him the Messiah. Now, this was such a huge step in the growth of the disciples' understanding of who Jesus was. But you've got to understand, they still had a lot of progress to make concerning Jesus and his ministry and his future. You see, they couldn't grasp the idea that the Messiah would suffer and that the Messiah would die a horrible, painful death on the cross of Calvary and that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. All of that was, was so much for them to take in. And then on top of that, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus called these disciples to make a total commitment of their lives to him. He said, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Their heads must have been spinning with all of this information and all of this new stuff about the Lord Jesus and his ministry and his future. The disciples kept hearing Jesus mention a word. It was the word kingdom. Their concept of this word as it related to Jesus was totally different than his. 
But understand this, his kingdom view had to become their kingdom view. To correct their, their thinking and to build their staggering faith, Jesus took the three leaders of the group, Peter, James, and John, to a high mountain where they were about to get a bird's eye view of the kingdom of God and the glory of that kingdom. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2, the Bible says six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now go back to verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death. In other words, you won't die. Some of you will not die until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, what in the world did Jesus mean by that? Well, the answer comes in verse 2. He took Peter, James, and John, that's the sum of them in verse 1, and took them up to a high mountain. Maybe it was Mount Hermon there near Caesarea Philippi. Maybe it was one of the uh, other mountains there as they made their way from Caesarea Philippi down to uh, the Sea of Galilee, but Jesus took them up on a high mountain and Jesus allowed these three men to see the glory of the kingdom. The Bible says he was transfigured before them. The Greek word used here appears four times in the New Testament. Here in in Matthew, Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it is used. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, where it refers to the same transfiguration, it is used. And it refers to the brilliant, eternal glory of Jesus' divinity bursting forth through the veil of his humanity. Oh, my soul. In uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it's used, the same word is used to refer to the transformation, the radical transformation that happens in a believer's heart when he or she repents of their sin and places their faith in Jesus and commits their life to him. In all four cases, this idea uh, that, that is presented here is a metamorphosis. It is a radical transformation that occurred in Jesus and in all who believe in him as a result of his supernatural power. So what Jesus was going to do, he was going to give these three men a glimpse of kingdom glory. In, in fact, Peter wrote about it later in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. In his second epistle, Peter wrote this, For we did not follow clever, cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Needless to say, this encounter made an indelible impression 
upon Peter, James, and John. John would later write in his gospel account. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now listen to this. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These guys would never be the same. They would never get this, this event out of their minds. In verse 3, of Mark chapter 9, the Bible goes on to say, And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launder on earth can whiten them. Now Luke in his account tells us that when they got up on the mountain, uh, that the disciples fell asleep. In fact, Luke tells us that Jesus led them up on the mountain to pray. It seemed like every time these disciples got together with Jesus to pray, they fell asleep. Has that ever happened to you? They fell asleep. And then suddenly, something supernatural happened. Jesus' garments became white as lightning dazzling in appearance. Matthew says that his face shone like the sun. I'll tell you, it was an incredible moment. I would imagine that when those disciples woke up, and they did wake up while this was going on, by the way, I'm sure that their eyeballs about jumped out of their eye sockets when they saw the glory of Jesus. No one had ever seen the Shekinah glory of Jesus. No one had ever seen his, his glory shining through his humanity the way the disciples saw it that day. This was the first time that any disciple had seen anything like this. Now, this wasn't reflected glory. Remember, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God, to receive the law, the Ten Commandments. And when he came down, the Bible says his face shone with the glory of God. Now, that was reflected glory. Jesus' glory was glory that was a part of his from all of eternity. It was intrinsic, intrinsic and eternal glory. In John 17, 5, just before he died, Jesus prayed this. He said, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You understand that Jesus is eternal in nature. He is the, the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is just as much God as God the Father and God the Spirit. And he had glory of his own from all of eternity. In Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 26, the Bible says, But in those days, the last days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and 
glory. He's coming, friend. The whole world will one day see the Shekinah glory of the Lord Jesus Christ emanating out of him. And I'll tell you, the whole world will bow in adoration to Jesus. And the whole world will declare, you are Lord. Verse 4, Mark 9, 4. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Now, the appearance of Elijah and Moses with Jesus symbolized what all history and creation had been waiting for. I'm telling you, since the beginning of time, everyone and everything had been waiting for this moment. You know what it was? It was the Messianic age. Representing the law and the prophets which Jesus fulfilled, according to Matthew 5, 17, these two visitors from heaven had a role to play in God's ongoing kingdom. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Now, I want you to hang on to that last little phrase. Moses prophesied that one day God's going to raise up a prophet like himself. And when he does, you need to make sure that you listen to that prophet. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, Jesus was the great prophet that Moses spoke about, and John the Baptist was the very essence of Elijah. He had come to prepare the way for Messiah. He had come to turn people's hearts back to God. And here they are in glorious splendor talking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Have you ever wondered, what were they talking about? Well, I can assure you, they weren't talking about the politics of the day. They weren't talking about the sports of the day that dominated the Roman Empire. They weren't talking about the state of the economy. They weren't even talking about the wonderful miracles that Jesus had been performing. You know what they were talking about? They were talking about his departure, his death. You say, Pastor, how do you know? Did you make that up? No. In Luke's gospel, remember, he records this same transfiguration event. In Luke 9, 30 and 31, here's what Luke said. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were talking about Jesus' death. And guess who was eavesdropping on their little chat? Peter, James, and John. The very men 
who were really struggling with the idea of Messiah suffering and dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. And they heard these two heavenly visitors, these Old Testament heroes, speaking about the death of Jesus. These two heroes of the faith confirmed that Jesus' death and resurrection was not an interruption in God's kingdom agenda. It was the very heart of God's kingdom agenda. The cross and the resurrection would solve the sin problem and make reconciliation with God a a thing that is possible and, and make the kingdom of God come alive. In Mark chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, Peter said to Jesus, sometimes I wonder about Peter. Because sometimes even when he doesn't know what to say, he says something. Do you know people like that? I, I mean, they can't stand silence. And if there's silence... They're going to say something, right, wrong, or indifferent. They're going to say something. They're going to break the silence. Well, James was stunned. John was stunned. But Peter, he had to say something. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Verse 6, look at it. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. He was scared silly. and He had no idea what to say, but he had to say something. Now, Peter's suggestion proves that he still didn't get it as far as Jesus and his life's purpose and kingdom purpose was concerned. He said, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It it, it seemed that, that Peter was putting Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on the same level. And my friends, they don't belong on the same level. Do you you know why Elijah and Moses wanted to talk with Jesus about his departure, his death? Because they had been saved on a credit card. Seriously. They looked forward to the day when Jesus would go to the cross and shed his blood and die for their sins and be resurrected from the dead so that they could be saved. Now, now, since the time of the gospel, since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we're saved on a gift card. We're saved on a gift card, not a credit card. We look back, Jesus has already done everything. We just sang, and I, I love that song. It's finished. At the cross, it was finished. Everything necessary to save your soul has been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is believe it and receive it by faith. And so these guys had a vested interest in talking with Jesus about his death. Now, let me say this to you, dear friend. Peter was flat out wrong. 
Elijah, Moses, and Jesus are not equals. Jesus is far superior to those two guys. And secondly, it seems like Peter was talking about these tabernacles. That, hey, let's just stay up here. Let's just start the kingdom now. Let's skip the cross and let's go straight to the crown. Peter was a kingdom now guy. But that wasn't the plan of God, was it? Look at verse 7, 8. Then a cloud formed. Anytime you see a cloud in the Bible, it, it seems to always represent the presence of God. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God guided them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the cloud of God, the Shekinah glory of God came down upon that mountain. And here that cloud appears on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, and a voice came out of the cloud, and here's what God said to these disciples. This is my beloved son. See, my friend, if you can't understand who Jesus is, you'll never be right with God. If you get that wrong, you're doomed for eternity. And God the Father says to Peter, James, and John, you've got to understand, he's not equal to Elijah and Moses. He's my beloved son. And then notice what, Jesus, what God said. Listen to him. What did the prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 say? Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he said, one day God is going to raise up for you a prophet like myself. And when he comes, listen. Deuteronomy 18, 15, listen to him. And God, speaking through the cloud, said to these three disciples, listen to him. Well, let me tell you, these three guys were scared out of their gourds. The Bible says in verse 8, all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. The transfiguration reaches its climax here. It's interesting. In, 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 a, in the Jewish way of thinking, for any significant event, whether it be a court of law, whether it be the accusation against an elder in the New Testament, whatever, you had to have two or three witnesses. And it's interesting that when Jesus went up onto the mountain, he took three witnesses with him, Peter, James, and John, to witness the validity of the transfiguration. You know what else is interesting? Heaven supplied three witnesses to the validity of the transfiguration also and to the identity and the authority of Jesus. 
Because heaven sent Moses and Elijah, and then God the Father himself appeared and validated and confirmed who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do and his inherent glory and authority. It's interesting that God the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism. You remember that? But he spoke to Jesus. And here he is speaking at the transfiguration. And now he's speaking to the disciples. His affirmation of Jesus was enormous. Now don't miss the clear command here to Peter, James, and John. Listen to him. Listen to him. He is God's beloved son and the ultimate expression of truth. So the disciples needed to pay close attention to what he said. And what had Jesus been saying? We'll look back at Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Listen to him. Listen to what he says about the cross. Listen to what he says about the resurrection. Listen to what he says about the kingdom. Listen to Jesus. In other words, listen with a heart that is geared to obedience. Now, when God finished speaking to the disciples, the preview of the kingdom and his glory was over. In fact, one of the gospel writers says that, that after Elijah and Moses went back to heaven and God, depart, God the Father departed and Jesus was left alone and now his, his glorified estate had, had gone back in and, and, and they viewed him as they had viewed him before that moment. As the perfect God-man. Fully God, fully man. You know what Jesus did? According to one of the synoptic gospels, those guys were mortified. Maybe they crouched down. Maybe they, they, they hid their heads in their arms when God the Father spoke to them through the, through the cloud. But the Bible says that Jesus came to them and touched them and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Oh, what a compassionate Savior we have. He could have passed zingers on those guys all day long. But he touched them. Said, do not be afraid. These disciples in the days to follow would face some confusing times and confusing events. They were still trying to get it together. Sometimes we think that these disciples had, have our perspective on Jesus. But you've got to understand, they didn't have a Bible. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. Jesus hadn't been resurrected from the dead. Jesus hadn't ascended to, to the Father yet. And they were trying to put all these puzzle pieces together. And it happened 
incrementally over a period of time. And this was a key moment in their training. They still had a ways to go. In the days to come, these disciples would scatter from Jesus when he was arrested, tried, and crucified. In the days to come, they would be utterly demoralized by his death. In the days to come, they would be enthralled when they met the resurrected Christ. In the days to come, they would totally commit their lives to Jesus. In the days to come, they would take his gospel and they would preach it in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In the days to come, nearly every one of them would be martyred for their faith. I'm going to tell you, friend, they finally got it. And today, Elijah... Moses, Peter, James, and John and the disciples are peering over the the portals of heaven. They are that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews writes about in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And you know what they want out of you and me as followers of Jesus? They want us to be totally committed to Jesus. They want us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. They are cheering us on. They know that one day Jesus will come in glory and his eternal kingdom will be set up once and for all. So so as I studied the transfiguration, there was a truth that sort of crystallized in my heart. And it's this. Jesus is the one answer for a broken world. Now, let me tell you, the answer for this broken world is not another politician. God help us. We don't need any more politicians. The answer for this world is not some kind of super businessman. That's not the answer for the world. The answer for the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one answer for a broken world. We've come face to face today with his glory, his identity, his purpose, and his authority. He is the hinge of history. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another rabbi. He's not just another miracle worker. He's the one who is Abraham's chosen seed. He's the one who is symbolized by Noah's ark. He's the one who is known as the son of David. He's the one whom Isaiah called the suffering servant. He's the one who fulfilled the old covenant. He's the one who established the new covenant. He's the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who conquered Satan, sin, and death. He's the one who is the world's only Savior. He's the one who is the Father's beloved Son. He is the one who reigns from heaven's throne today. He is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the one who will bring real lasting justice to this world. He is the one who will come in glory. He is the one who will rule the world. He is the one who will create new heavens and a new earth. He is the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's more loving, more holy, and more powerful than we could ever have thought. 
He's the one that God the Father told the three disciples to listen to because he is and will always be the full expression of truth. Let me ask you, is he speaking to you today? Is he speaking to you concerning your need to be saved? Is he? Listen to him. Is he speaking to you about your need to be baptized? You were saved back there, but you've never followed your salvation up with baptism where you publicly profess Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Is he speaking to you about your baptism? Listen to him. Is he speaking to you about joining Carville First Baptist Church? Listen to him. Is he speaking to you about being refreshed spiritually? Because spiritually right now, you're dry as a desert. Listen to him. Is he speaking to you about abiding in Jesus and digging deeper into the word and deeper into your prayer life? Listen to him. Is he speaking to you about sharing the gospel? Listen to him. Is he speaking to you about embracing embracing his will for your life? Listen to Jesus. That means to obey him right now. So here's what I want us to do. I'm going to ask our staff to come. Our worship team to come. And let me tell you this. If Jesus is speaking to you about one of these issues in your life, I want to encourage you to come to one of our pastors, one of our staff members, and just tell them what Jesus is speaking to you about. That We'll help you. We'll work through that with you. You come. Or maybe you want to come to the altar and just humble yourself before Jesus and act on what he has spoken into your heart today. You come. Do you need to be saved? Is he calling you to be a part of Carnival First Baptist Church, to join the church, to be baptized? You come. I can tell you this. Without stuttering or stammering, I can tell you this. Jesus is the one answer for a broken world. He's your one answer. He's the only hope you have. So listen to him. God the Father said, listen to my son and obey him. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for an outpouring of the Spirit of God. And I pray that we wouldn't be among the group that only hears the Word of God. I pray we would be among the group who obeys the Word of God. Lord Jesus, whatever you've spoken into our lives, help us to do it right now. May you be glorified and exalted in our response. We love you and bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship and you come.